0: Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Michael. I'm one of the volunteer pastors. Um, I'm sitting here on a Sunday afternoon in Kiriwi at the factory. It's wonderful that you can join us as we um, begin a new series in Daniel. Uh, The world at the moment is a bit strange. Uh, Anzac Day celebrations and uh, memorials were cancelled due to our social distancing requirements and the isolation that's going on. Uh, The world is in a bit of a crisis at the moment. Uh, thankfully, through God's grace, Australia has not had it as bad as some other places, but life is different and strange, and we, still, we don't really know how we are to live. Uh, but thankfully, as we start our new series in Daniel, we're going to look at a time and a place where some men of God lived through a crisis, lived through a time of isolation in a foreign land, in a foreign place, away from their family and friends. Um, but they looked to God to figure out how to live. Um, And as Christians, we uh, can put our trust in God because God's truths are eternal uh, and his blessings um, are there for those who he loves. Uh, And now we're going to go to a a special segment. Um, We've got Karen, who's interviewing Gemma, who's one of the Berean interns here at Soul Revival Church. Uh, Gemma's had a rather... Uh, interesting last couple of months um, and we're excited to hear about that so I'm going to throw now to Karen and Gemma.
1: Well we've got Gemma joining us today on the very long couch thanks Gemma for joining us. Um, Gemma's been doing some pretty exciting things lately and we're going to spend a little bit of time chatting with her about about some of those so yeah as I mentioned you've, you've just been off on a, on a bit of an adventure uh, do you want to tell us what you've been doing?
2: Yeah, so at the end of January, I, uh, yeah, started an exchange, um, actually working at Disney World um, in Orlando, Um, and yeah, I just got to work at Disney and live there, and uh, I just had a great time. I worked as a park greeter at Animal Kingdom, which is one of the four parks they have there, Um, and yeah, it was just a great time of learning and uh, making magic for people and just, you know, the whole fairy tale kind of thing, yeah.
1: Yeah and um, unfortunately it got cut short with all of this coronavirus stuff but um, I can imagine and I remember talking to you about the excitement before you went um, that there would have been heaps of exciting things uh, about it but often these types of experiences we also learn heaps of stuff. Um, What would be some of the life lessons that you've taken away from this experience?
2: well i think there are a lot of life lessons that come with an exchange um yeah definitely just from the get-go doing paperwork i think i definitely yeah got a knack for that um and just all the visa and organizing that all by myself and having to figure out what the right paperwork was and what visa i needed um, and just contacting people who are overseas with time difference um, was a challenge um, but then i also think overcoming things like traveling on my own um, yeah and just navigating through the airport by myself which I hadn't done before um, and of course living out of home with lots of roommates I lived with five other girls um, in a very small apartment so <laughs> going through uh, sorting out you know things like the kitchen or just deciding who buys what and you know just space being in a confined space with a lot of people is a challenge um, and I think I definitely learned from that.
1: And, and often, too, these types of experiences really stretch us spiritually as well. What do you feel like God's been teaching you? What have you sort of been learning in terms of your faith and your relationship with God through all of this?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's definitely, um, it's definitely been a growing thing that happened across the whole exchange experience. So um, I had to put a lot of trust in God that... Um, I was doing this for a good reason and um, I had to put trust in him when I was traveling by myself and navigating this adventure by myself, like there was a lot of trust. Um, I also think finding a community of people that were like-minded was hard and um, just really trying to maintain a a strong relationship with God when the people around me aren't necessarily, you know, like-minded in the same way that I am. Um, But I also think one of the biggest things has actually been coming home Um, when I found out I had to come home that was a pretty um, big thing and it was a pretty (laughs) scary time and uh, when Mm -hmm. flights were being cancelled and navigating okay what flight am I going to get like how am I going to pack up this life that I've kind of set up really quickly Um, and just yeah trusting that God was going to keep me safe in you know going through the airport and all of those things and just being able to reach my family again and be safe at home Um, but I also think being at home has been another lesson I think um it's been really humbling um when you kind of leave six months to do something and then that's cut short and everything you come home to everything being cancelled it's really a weird feeling and I've been you know struggling with finding things to do and I think that's just been really grounding and a humbling experience mm-hmm.
1: yeah it really makes you dig deep into God and to, to recognize that's that's the constant in all of this yeah um so, you know, life has changed and, and now you're sort of working out what it's going to be uh, now, like all of us. Um, what are what are the, some of the things that you've, you'd you like to hang on to that you've learnt as you move into the, the next phases of life?
2: Yeah, I definitely think, um, especially that clinging on to God and trusting God, I think it shouldn't take, you know, a scary experience to trust in God. And I think, um, yeah, just relying on Him and praying to Him just in every situation, I think I really like to hold on to that. Um, and I also just think, you know, with um, not being able to come to church, like the community is not the same. Um, and I kind of experienced that when I was overseas, not having the same community. And I think um, it really taught me not to just rely on church for my faith and to make sure that I, you know, was having a two-sided relationship with God and um, that I was investing in that in my own time as well as in church and Bible study time. Yeah.
1: It's, I mean, they're beautiful lessons. It's, it's a shame you had to sort of learn it that way <laughs> and experience that. But there's, I guess as you look back, there's going to be some good memories you can hang on to about that as well. Yeah.
3: Thanks so much, Gemma. Thank you. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we come before you with reverence and confidence, knowing that you are both the creator of solar systems and also the Father who knew and loved each one of us before we were born. There is so much fear in the world around us, Lord. Fear of change and the unknown and what might be. Help us to hold fast to you and your promise that you will never abandon us, never forsake us. Give us courage to trust this promise. And while we go about the business of living in this world, in the spheres you've placed us into, we ask for discernment and we ask for wisdom to tackle the misinformation, uncertainty and unknowns that we face. With the psalmist, we ask you to test us and know us. There is nothing hidden from you, nothing that can take you by surprise. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you about where our hearts and souls rest, about what matters to us and where our loyalties lie. And where there are things that are displeasing to you, refine us and give us courage to submit to the refining process. We are your people, Lord, and we want to be pleasing to you. We want to be a light that shines in the darkness, that all who see us look towards the source of that light, to you. So we pray for our community groups as they navigate how to do life together in this different context of online spaces. And again, we ask for wisdom and also for grace, to know how best to love and support each other. We thank you for the fact that we can continue to meet virtually and that no earthly sickness can ever stand in the way of your kingdom. We thank you for the technology that enables our virtual meetings and the privilege that it is to be able to access that. And we thank you that despite the things we don't have and can't do in this time, you remain constant and you continue to bless us in big ways and little ways. You are our good,
4: good Father. Amen. Invite you to read along in your Bible at home. We're reading Daniel, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Beltshazzar, To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Zariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus.
5: Well, hi friends, it's great to be with you today. I'm asking to ask a question: Are you starting to feel frustrated? You're probably right to be, but feel that way as this. As the impact of this viral pandemic drags on you can feel frustrated and now the big question is this, when are we going to lift the restrictions so that we can get some sort of semblance of normal life going again? And the answer to that question is a bit tricky, Uh, it can't help but be shaped by our inner motivations. No doubt you've heard the accusations fly, this one wants to lift the restrictions because They're driven by the economics or this one wants to keep all the restrictions in place because they're motivated by the medical arguments. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Hard to work out. Another way of thinking about our motivations is to ask where our loyalties lie. When so much of how we think and act is driven by our loyalty. So here's a question for you. Where does your loyalty lie? When the music starts to play, which tune are you going to dance to? Who calls the shots in your life? Well, this is the big question that lies behind the book of Daniel. Who rules? Who's the one in control? Who's the boss? Who calls the shots? And the book of Daniel will not only ask that question generally, it'll ask the question of each one of us. Who calls the shots in your life? Who calls the shots in my life? Well, as we're challenged to reflect upon our inner motivations and call to align ourselves with God, we do need to ask for his help to do that. So why don't we pray now that God would help us to hear his word today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your word. And so now as we we start a new book of of, of the Bible, We pray that you would be with us, to hear your word speak to us, to have hearts that are willing to obey, ready to follow you. And Lord, we know that we will be asked the question of our inner motivation. We do pray that you would help us to change, so that we might serve you all the more in all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, the question is this. Who rules? Who is the boss Who calls the shots? And as we open the Bible, well, we get the expected answer. God rules. God's in control. But perhaps unexpectedly, God's in control even when things go bad. Have a look at verse 1 with me on the screen here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Now, these two opening verses are brutally frank. In just a few words, we hear that one nation devours another. And for the Jewish reader, this is doubly tragic because here we see Israel on the brink of of extinction. This was not just any nation, this was God's special chosen nation. For generations God had nurtured these people. 1000 years prior to this he had delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He had brought them into the promised land and allowed them to grow in number so they could become a great nation. There was even a time where the whole world turned to Israel for wisdom. But in recent generations Cracks had begun to show. The nation had become divided and the leadership had become evil. The northern part of Israel has already been conquered by a previous world power. And Judah and Jerusalem, even though they had a small reprieve from that, now a world power, the next world power, Babylon, has come to their doorstep. The year is 605 BC and Babylon has arrived Squeeze the life out of Jerusalem. Now, in these days of uh, social distancing and confinement, we might be able to imagine the Jew who's been locked up in his city. Perhaps there was a bit of panic buying when they first heard that was all happening, but sadly, the stocks of the supermarkets were not going to be renewed. They were going to be starved out. This was indeed the end of Jerusalem. So imagine what's going through their mind at this time. How could God let this happen? There is a pagan tyrant regime stomping all over the Holy Land. Where is God? Isn't he in control? So we have a look at verse 2 again here on the screen. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. See, God is still ruling. Even when things are going horribly wrong, the Lord is the one who delivered Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. And even though this event is totally shocking, it's actually totally consistent with God's word. You see, God had warned them again and again to turn back to him. But again and again, the nation had turned away in disobedience. At the foundation of the nation, God could not have been any clearer. He said, if you obey me, you will get blessing." conversely, if you disobey me, you will be cursed. What seemed like a disaster was actually God being true to his word. Generations had disobeyed and now they would be taken out of the land of blessing. You see, Babylonian didn't sneak up to Jerusalem while God had his back turned. Quite the opposite. It was God who enabled Babylon to take Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine how this would have felt to see Jerusalem come crashing down? This was the place where God dwelt with his people. This was the place of blessing, and now it's gone. There are chapters and chapters in the Bible given over to mourning this tragic event. Probably the most famous was Psalm 137, where it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. And their captors mocked Jerusalem. They say, pick up your lyres and your musical instruments and sing the praises of God for us. They couldn't. They were choking back tears. They were weeping. It's a hard thing to grasp, isn't it? To know that God is still in charge when things go wrong. I mean, do you think that God is less in charge when things go wrong? Be honest. I think you do. We all do. When relationships break down, when we lose our job because the economy is collapsing, it's just so sad and painful, and it's hard to really believe that God is in control. Friends, the Bible everywhere tells us that when empire invades a nation, when a virus spreads uncontrollably, when economies collapse. God is still in control. He rules and he can even use evil and suffering to bring about great good. Now, so much more could be said about this topic, but time won't allow it to do it today. But if you would like to find out more about this, then want to put a message in the chat at Facebook or contact us on the website. Even though we're separated, we don't need to suffer in silence. Please get in touch if you need to. Well, that was the first point. God rules even when things go bad. But positively, on the flip side, God rules when things go well. Now, before we discuss this, the scene moves from Jerusalem to the the Babylonian court. From verse 3, we read this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were enter the king's service. Verse 6, among those chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So, What's going on here? What we see is some crafty political manoeuvring, do we not? Babylon is shaping the clever youth of their captives. What better way to squash an uprising by taking away the ones that are the potential leaders? Take the young with the most potential and educate them. Become your own leaders. And even go so far as to rename them so their very identity becomes Babylonian. Now all this sounds pretty negative for these young Jewish boys. I thought we were going to talk about the positive things you said. Have a look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. Even though we're deep in the Babylonian court, God changes the heart of the official. So he's compassionate and agrees to Daniel's food request, the request of eating only vegetables and drinking only water. And you know how the experiment pans out. After 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men in the royal court. And then we read on in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Isn't that amazing? Even as these young men studied pagan culture, God was giving knowledge and understanding. Ultimately, it was God who was giving the blessing. He was the one blessing the pathway of these young men, watching over the development, until their wisdom and understanding became unparalleled, unmatched in all of Babylon. And so we see, there's no change from good times to bad times. God is in control. And so we come to our last point. Because God rules, we need to live as exiles. Now, this is why the stand taken by Daniel and his friends is so significant. Have a look at it again here on the screen, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, what's going on here? I mean, so far Daniel has accepted re-education and even a pagan name. But now he draws the line here with food. Well, let's rule a few things out first. There's no indication that the rejection of this food was because of a Jewish food law, you know, that that, that the food was not kosher. Nor is there anything mentioned about the fact that food was connected to some kind of idol worship, like the problem we find in the New Testament. Nor should we think that Daniel's stance has something to do with being a vegetarian, that that's somehow better than eating rich Food. Later in the book, Daniel's going to mention that he himself did eat rich food and drank wine. So, why the stand? What's going on here? Well, the point is to understand the significance of accepting the food from this table. Eating the meal would be a sign of commitment, a sign of obligation, of, of full loyalty to Babylon. You know, in today's context, it's a bit like the business lunch. Now, the business lunch it doesn't matter what you're eating. What matters is that we're sitting on the table together and we're se- cementing the deal. It's finalising the business agreement. And it's at this point that Daniel says, This is the limit of my loyalty to Babylon. I'm not going to eat at your table. I'm not going to finalise the deal with you. There's a point where I need to draw the line, a point where I'll go public and say clearly but humbly, I'm putting my lot in with the God of heaven. I serve a higher king, It's And the God of Israel. All of this is a, it's a lovely story, isn't it not? Um, we have the plunging lows of Jerusalem being destroyed. We have the soaring highs of Daniel rising through the courts of Babylon but still remaining faithful to God. But what has it got to do with us today? Well, before as we come to think about that, we need to go back and think about the two cities that are on view here. Jerusalem and Babylon. Yes, they are real places. You can find them on the map. But throughout the Bible, they actually represent something so much more. Here's a brief summary that I've made about Jerusalem and Babylon. Firstly, Jerusalem. Now, it's God's holy city. It's where God and his people are in relationship. It's where God's people belong. And also, it's not just physical. There's a promise of a future Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, to which God and his people will be in perfect relationship. Okay? There's the picture of Jerusalem. Conversely, we have the city of Babylon. This is the city that was built in opposition to God. Remember the Tower of Babel, It's where it all began, and what were they doing there? They were making a name for themselves, setting themselves up in opposition to God, saying, you know what, God, we don't need you. We're actually quite able to run our life our own way without you. It's a place where you're set up in opposition to God. And also, as you read throughout the Bible, it's the place where God's people are when they're in exile. And so we look at Daniel. And Daniel is the model Person of God. He's located in Babylon in exile, but he remains a citizen of Jerusalem by being loyal to God. And so there's lessons in Daniel's time that remain for God's people today. So what's Babylon like? Babylon is much the same as city as Sydney. It's a bustling city that largely ignores God. Yet God's people live as exiles and strangers in these worldly cities. That's how the Apostle describes Christians as he opens his letter in the New Testament. I've got it here on screen for you. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's elect. Who are they? Exiles. Scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And see, that's where the question of loyalty comes in. Christians live, or should I say are actually in exile, in Babylon, but they actually belong to a heavenly Jerusalem. Babylon is all around us. It's very real. It presses in upon us. While the heavenly Jerusalem is something that comes down the track, it's something in our future and at times it can seem a bit vague or non-real. The challenge for the Christian is this, to declare loyalty to the right city, to commit to citizenship in the right place. Have a look at how Paul talks about citizenship from Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, all kinds of things, all kinds of people can demand our allegiance. It could be something as simple as blokey camaraderie It could be company loyalty. It could be staying inside the team spirit. It could be the person from whom you desperately want approval. It could be the family that has certain expectations. It could be the club you want to join. All these things demand allegiance. They're not wrong in themselves, but the trick is to know when do they start to rival loyalty to God. So we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray for wisdom, to know where to draw the line, And then we need to pray for boldness and conviction to graciously take our stand and say, I'm actually loyal to Jesus. I can't be part of this behaviour. I'm loyal to Jesus. I don't agree with this type of thinking. I can go no further. Yeah, it's interesting to think, is it not, that if Daniel and his friends did not make a stand when they were young, over these seemingly small things, would they have been so convicted to make a stand later in life when the stakes were so much higher? Friends, same question for us. If we don't take a stand for God now, what makes you think you're going to stand for him later in life? When age wearies us, when prosperity seduces us, Loyalty to God is a lifelong exercise that builds strength and conviction. At some point, we will be tested. At some point, we'll need to make it plain that our ultimate loyalty is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do... Declare that you are indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. You demand our total loyalty. We want that to give that to you, Lord, but so many times we know we fail. We turn from you and we're seduced by the worldly Babylon. Lord, help us to be people who have our minds set upon you, set on things above, set on the heavenly Jerusalem, that city where we're going to live one day with you perfect relationship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Soul Revival Church podcast. And just a reminder, if you want to watch any of these services that we hold live, you can go to soulrevivalchurch.com and you can see all the gatherings at the top of the page. You can choose anyone you wish. It can be on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Thanks again, and one way.
4: Music is OK by X.